I've been dreading this one. You, you're probably thinking, Lore, it's a good episode. And then, then. I'm dreading it for the same reason I dreaded covering Best of Both Worlds back in the day. This is, by basically every measure, the most popularly well-received episode of TOS. Just like Best of Both Worlds is the most popularly well-received episode of TNG. Opinion varies on what the actual best episode of TNG is, just like opinion varies on the best episode of TOS. But this is the one pretty much everyone knows about. It also, in many ways, is what helped push Star Trek into circles it otherwise wasn't in at the time. Remember, Season 2 was already locked in at this point, thanks to the whole... Oh god, I can't remember. It's it's a May plus Western. I still can't have it looked up the name of that stupid company. <laughs> but at this point in history, there was this whole thing going on behind the scenes, and long story short, this episode got a lot of attention outside of science fiction circles. And that's the key part. That's the big point that I'm trying to make here. Um, in fact, I would say if I was to track how many works of Star Trek have pushed beyond sci-fi into general consensus, I can only name three off the top of my head. This episode, Star Trek IV, and Best of Both Worlds. Regardless of quality, those ones hit, you know, popular culture, not just science fiction culture. I'm going to do something I don't often do here. I'm going to read to you guys. Because honestly, like you look at my notes and it's like, that's not even a full page of notes. How could you manage that? Well, because there's too much for me to cover to fit in my notes. So let's hit the controversy first. Ugh. First of all, let me just get something out of the way really quick. There's, there's a decent amount of controversy when it comes to this show in general. There was a lot of politicking, there was a lot of BS going on. This is nothing new. I've already covered similar things in TNG, and I have already covered some stuff in DS9. And, over on the Tuesdays, I should already have covered, by the time this episode goes live, some of the stuff going on in Enterprise. It's nothing new. The ugh is... Well, I'm going to go ahead and admit something. I don't like Harlan Ellison. Oh, he does decent writing. I don't want to sound like he doesn't. In fact, he is actually quite an excellent writer. But the man himself is kind of a jerk, <laughs> you know? I mean, that's not exactly an uncommon thing, right? There's plenty of very talented people who are not super pleasant to be around. Allow me to start by reading from this. Um, now, uh, God, where do I even start with this? So let's start with the bare bones. On the off chance you're not familiar with the general idea, Harlan Ellison wrote this episode. In fact, he had been working on it for, I think, a total of nine months before he actually got a workable script going out. It was like a four-month and then three weeks and then another four months, something like that. So this is something that had been in development since early TOS. He was actually called in early on in TOS's history to do this episode, and there was some finagling, I'll talk about that in a minute, and then that led to, you know, this episode finally actually being written. So he finally writes this thing, right? And this episode received uh, several awards. The actual, the script, which is not the one that we actually see on camera, that's not what we're covering today, got a, a Writer's Guild Award. I forget what it was actually called. Uh, it's just called the Writer's Guild Award, whatever. I'll talk about that in a second, too. But the relevant point is, if you actually are interested in the original script, you can go find it. Uh, there's actually a comic book version of it. Harlan Ellison himself has produced books based off of it. 
I'm going to give you a very brief overview, because I wrote it up right here. Ellison's original story outline uh, did not include McCoy, but include Beckwith, who was dealing drugs on the crew. Beckwith murdered a fellow crewman named Lebeck, who was on the verge of turning him in, and escaped to the planet of the ship was orbiting. There he went through a time vortex, operated by a mysterious ancient race called the Guardians, and changed history. As a result, the Enterprise was gone, and a savage pirate ship called the Condor was in its place, full of renegade humans. Kirk and Spock follow Beckwith through the time portal to 1930s Chicago, where Kirk falls in love with Edith Kostler. Finally, with the help of the legless World War I vet called Trooper, who dies in the course of the episode, they find Beckwith, and in the end, Kirk does not stop him from saving Edith. He freezes at a crucial moment. Spock prevents her rescue, and in the epilogue, Spock visits a griefing Kirk, attempts to console him. No other woman was offered the universe for love. This was the original story element. Um... Beckwith was sentenced to death after the murder. Kirk orders execution on the next planet they come across. Uh, there was actually going to be a firing squad that was ejected. There was also going to be a thing where Kirk and Spock got into a heavy argument uh, about whether or not they should interact with people or whether they should let people be lynched by the mob. Uh, th there's some back and forth on this one. Now, here's the thing. So that's the original treatise. And like I said, you can find the actual original story if you're more interested in it. You can see why... It's pretty different, noticeably different from what we got. But you can also see why it's not really Star Trek, especially not this era of Star Trek. Now, I'm going to read from you what Harlan Ellison said on this. Now, he, wrote, he talks and talks and talks and talks and talks and talks and talks. So I'm going to try and hit the, the, hell, the relevant points here. Gene Roddenberry and I had a falling out in terms of creativity about what I would have done with my show. I thought the rewrite that was expected of me that I did several times and the couple of other writers put on the follow-up cut the guts out of my show. I thought at the time Gene had lied to me. And I will not work with anyone who lies to me. Life is too short. So Gene and I didn't talk for many years as a result of it, and it was strictly on an artistic basis. Gene has always been a kind and decent man, but I think he was under pressure from the network at the time as that budget was being cut. This is true, by the way. This is, by the way, the third most expensive episode of TOS ever. The only things that were more expensive were both pilots. And I think he wanted to satisfy the network, so he did things to my show, which I was not happy about, which he had promised me would not be done to the show. Subsequently, Gene and I buried the hatchet, as it were, and we reached reproachment, and he has done a number of kind things to me, so I'd like to not batmouth him at this point. There's two things, uh, two ways of looking at this, now that he's finished his preface. First of all, the one that won the Writers Guild Award was my original version of the script. It was not what was shot. The Writers Guild Awards are the most honest awards in the industry. Not like the Oscars, which are Mickey Mouse. They're nothing like but popularity rewards. The Writers Guild Awards are given on basis of written material. So it was, in fact, my script that won the award. The one that won the Hugo was the televised version. And, of course, I'd like to be arrogant enough to think the script is so damn good that even butchering it couldn't hurt it. But in comparison to most other segments that were on Star Trek, which I wasn't wildly enthusiastic about, it was a pretty good show. Having done the show myself, having written it, I know how good the quality of the script was. I can only say that what people see was one-twentieth of what was there originally. Now, maybe that doesn't bother you, but, I mean, that that is fully Harlan Ellison right there. The man is a little bit... However, Roddenberry then... Um... <laughs> Roddenberry's response to this exact same point, this is in 1988, uh, I wouldn't want Harlan Ellison in the same room with me. I've given all of them a chance. Harlan got a chance on the first show and wrote a $350,000 estimated budget show when I had, in those days, 186000 And when I told him to cut the budget, he sent me back the script saying, in parentheses, to do it with special effects. He then submitted it to the Writers Guild, which gave him Writers Guild Prize, which he deserved for the script. 
Except that many people would get prizes if they wrote scripts that budgeted up to three times the show's cost. I rewrote that at the script for Harlan, and it won the Nebula Award, which he rushed up on stage and took credit for, too. Now here's the catch. For a really long time, almost two decades, actually, everyone just sort of assumed that Gene Roddenberry rewrote the script. This is not true, by many accounts that I have, have gone through, and I'm going to try and discuss some of the proof on this, but the long and the short of it is Gene did rewrite that script. Gene Kuhn, along with uh, Carabostos, whose name I keep screwing up, DC Fonta and DC Fontana, and then a little bit of reworking by Gene Ronbury at the end. In fact, point of fact, we can actually point to how, how much of this episode came out of Fontana and how much of it came out of Kuhn be simply by the styles of both writers. You can just identify which elements are both of them. I'm not the only one who did that either. Several people have flat out pointed out that most of the humorous elements of the episode in about the midway point were all added by Kuhn, because that's kind of his shtick. He's good at that. Um, hang on. I'm looking at some things. D.F. Black was actually working with Harlan Ellison, just to give you an idea of how early on he was actually down there. And Harlan was just not doing the script, too. Which I suppose that's a good way to segue into this other book I have. Now, I haven't been reading from this on camera this whole time, but I bookmarked this just to read this one thing. Oh, by the way, I mentioned how expensive this episode was. In addendum to that, this episode was also an eight-and-a-half-day shoot. One of the longest shoots they had at the time. Did you know that this book has an entire chapter dedicated towards Harlan Ellison and City on the Edge of Forever? So, God, there's so much here. I'm not going to read the whole thing, obviously. Um, but it does mention that this is Bob, which is... That's Justman. Just making sure. I just want to verify. Yeah, I, I thought it was Justman. Justman gets to the point where he more or less literally took Harlan hostage in order to force him to get the, the script done. I mentioned that point because he took for... I already kind of talked about this. He took forever to push it in, and then there was the rewrite, and then he said, I'll go ahead and rewrite it, and blah, blah, blah. Um, fearful that the next millennium would arrive... This is Justman's exact words. Would arrive before Harlan's next effort, Gene Ronberry prevailed upon him to write his first draft teleplay at the studio. Harland arrived with his own typewriter, portable radio, and his own original approach to creativity. Every now and again, visitors would be surprised at the sight of him cartwheeling down the corridor, unwinding as he took a break. Stuff about Harlan, stuff about Harlan. After a few weeks, Harlan complained we were forcing him to work under inhumane and inhuman conditions. Since we desperately needed his final teleplay, I arranged for Harlan to work and sleep in my office, Justman's office, until he finished the script. It really was a jail sentence. I'm locking you in every night, Harlan, so the sooner you finish, the sooner you can go free. Scrolling down, scrolling down. Then he talks about how he actually worked with Harlan Ellison back in The Outer Limits on the episode Demon with a Glass Hand. Good episode, by the way. An episode that was rewritten. Harlan Ellison got a award for that, by the way. Anyways, the two actually had a working environment, and the reason I bring that up is because, according to Justman, that's why Harlan was willing to put up with some of the stuff he was putting up with. So they had a meeting, and he shows up, and we got the first Telebrate draft within three weeks. He then departed. Then I wrote a memo to D.F. Black saying, this is the best written and beautifully, this is the best and most beautifully written screenplay we've gotten to date and the best we'll get over this season. 
However, we cannot afford to shoot the show as it presently stands. Set construction costs, location suiting, extras, stunts, special effects, special photographic effects, wardrobe costs, period props, set dressing rentals, and too many other numerous dimensions. We need to try and retain all the basic qualities within this screenplay and then at the same time make it economically feasible for us to photograph it. This is an eight-day show to my way of thinking, and I'd like to try down for seven. And as I pointed out many times, they were budgeted for six. So this led to some issues, and this led to some issues, and then we skip forward a little bit here. Um, you know, Spock's speech about women has that Kirk has known grates a little bit. It makes Kirk sound like a horny sailor instead of a noble captain. I've been frank as possible I can with my comments. I'm not intended to be brutal in any way. However, I feel constrained, therefore, to read this book. Basically, there's a lot of back and forth. One of the most important things about this, though, is he didn't want Harlan Ellison to read his own memos about him because he felt it strained their working relationship, and Harlan had found ways to read those memos in the past. They were not memos directed at Harlan Ellison, by the way. So then, <laughs> four additional months happened for him to deliver his final, final draft, although part of this was part of uh, his involvement in the Science Fiction Writers of America campaign to save Star Trek, something that was happening leading into Season 2. I've, I've kind of mentioned that, I'll mention that more in the future. And, of course, he was writing on other TV shows. Duh. However, Justman wrote, I've just completed reading the script. It's dated 20, uh, 12, 12, uh, 1st of December, 1966. Even though it was delivered a hell of a lot later than that. I can tell there's a possibility you will rewrite this to make it feasible. Therefore, I address this memo to you in hopes it may prove of inestimable value. Then he goes down the list. This is awesome. I love how he actually goes into explicit detail, including mentioning specific scenes. Example. Why don't you look at the beginning of scene 62 and all the description contained therein and estimate to yourself how many extras you'd have to hire. Figure out how many people you'd have to hire, how many people would have to wardrobe, how many people would have to have the wardrobe altered to fit, how many cars, how many silent bits, which is higher pay rates for extra supernatural characters without dialogues, and how many special bits, higher pay rates for extras who are given specific actions to perform, and how many musicians, uniforms, car drivers, period cars, period trucks, set dressing, lunches, suppers, overtime, night penalty, 10 to 20% on hourly rates, and golden time, two and a half times hourly rate for after 12 hours of studio work or 14 hours of nearby location work, and so on and so on and so on. Now, I mention all of this not to just c continue hammering the point about how expensive this original script was, but to add a little bit of credence to the idea that the original script was A, completely infeasible, which is going to be important in a minute, and B, give you a little insight into what goes into actually making a show. I've talked many, many times in very rough terms about costs and budget and time and extras and bottle shows. This is probably, a, it's one of the reasons I love this book. It's such a detailed look at the making of television, at least back in the 60s. So they did some rewrites and 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 they did some rewrites. And I'm just going to skip through this because I really want to get into one next thing here. And that would be... The 1967 Writers Guild of America Awards Dinner. Dinner was held at something French I can't pronounce, the elegant rooftop restaurant at the Beverly Hilton Hotel in Beverly Hills, where on this night, black-tied men and beautifully gowned women gathered to celebrate not of the best of the best. Among the writers nominated for a Towning Script in its television dramatic series was Harlan Ellison for City on the Edge of Forever. Desilu had bought a table for the big event. Sitting happily around it were the two jeans, RJ, my friend and well-known screenwriter Howard Rodman, myself, and all our wives. We were all excited. There was a chance Star Trek script would be singled out for excellence to win the reward. Award. I keep screwing that up. Award. We hoped that Star Trek would receive some peer recognition, and we'd all bathe in the limelight. Pause. Remember, Star Trek 
the whole thing about Star Trek breaking out into popular culture. Remember that Star Trek, while it was actually popular among science fiction circles, was nowhere near the phenomenon it would eventually be at this point. These were people putting together a passion project and trying to actually see... You ever wanted something you make that you really love to make to get just some kind of recognition? Surely you understand that. So, <clears throat> the time had come, the announcement was made, the award for most outstanding script for a dramatic television series, sitting on the edge of, of forever. We were thrilled, we applauded Harlan, our hero, as he arose from his chair at another table and strode to the podium to receive his award and say a few words. Well, perhaps more than a few words after all, the winner was Harlan. But after Harlan finished saying all the usual nice things about his writer peers and his guild, failing to mention Star Trek or even recognizing the two genes in RJ, that would be Robert Justman, by the way, he quickly turned his attention to artistic integrity, and as quickly our joy evaporated. Harlan berated the studio executive suits and the executive producers and producers of television series for interfering with the writing process. I was surprised that Harlan, while he was at it, didn't berate the waiters for clearing tables while a writer was speaking. But the ultimate insult had yet to come. Building to a passionate finale, Harlan suddenly brandished the original script above his head, shook it in the manner of Napoleon Bonaparte, and declared, Remember, never let them rewrite you. The writer-dominated audience rose to their feet en masse and hailed this living hero who had the guts to publicly speak out against them. And as Harlan walked from the podium, he looked over to our table and defiantly shook his script at us. Like I said, he's a dick. But this, more than anything else, lends a little bit of insight into this whole process and why this kind of thing happens. It's so easy to take that perspective, isn't it? And with good reason. After all, how many creative works can you name that have basically been ruined because of executive meddling? In fact, executive meddling in common parlance is shorthand for screwing it up. But it's not always. Something I admittedly don't do a good enough job about properly showcasing, um, which I, I, I need to do more of, if I'm being honest, because there's a whole lot of that, and it's kind of... It's all, it's all nuanced, right? If, if anything, studying Star Trek for the last several years I've been, as I've been going through these shows has given me this renewed appreciation for the producers and the budget and the, the costumers and the makeup people and the, the lighting staff and the camera work and all of this stuff that is necessary to make this happen. Yes, in an, in, in an open environment, it would be nice to just write whatever and do whatever. But someone needs to make sure the show actually gets made. This is one of those reasons why I'm willing to even give credence to Rick Berman, a man I would gladly punch in the gut if I had the power of the cue and didn't have any repercussions from doing so, simply because the man's a horrible human being who's kind of a jackass. But he was a producer. He made sure that Star Trek got made. That however much he altered or changed and screwed things up, and he certainly did, nevertheless, the show actually happened. We have TNG in many cases, because of Rick Berman. To see Harlan take that stance of, oh, executive meddling ruined my script, is understandable. It was his script. His script would have never gotten made. If that mentality prevailed, a huge number of things that we love and, and, and hold dear would never have gotten made, because practicality is part of the equation. I've been told many times I think too much like an engineer. I get it from most of my mother's side of the family. And as an engineer, I always tend to think about that. Okay, that's a nice idea. How do we make it work? How do you actually do it functionally, practically, make it happen? And that's exactly what these kind of people are trying to do. 
it's actually funny to me because Rick Berman is so much worse than Robert Justman and Herbert Solo. And yet Harlan was railing against these two guys for very correctly and adequately saying, yeah, no, this is nonsense. We need to bring this back down to earth. And for what is frankly, and I'm just going to say this as bluntly as I can, an excellent rewrite by uh, Carabostos, Fontana, and Kuhn. And Roddenberry, sorry. <laughs> Everyone agrees that he barely did anything at the end. That's why I keep forgetting him there. My apologies. But he did do something. Right? <laughs> so, I don't... I suppose I've kind of given my opinion, but ultimately all I'm trying to do is give more information. You can you can make up your own mind on this, and there's plenty to be said about this topic. But I do think this is a situation in which... The way I used to hear it, let me let me finish with this, and then I swear I'll talk about the actual episode. The way I used to hear it was Roddenberry, it was Roddenberry versus Harlan. And Roddenberry was like, I took that and rewrote it and made it reasonable. Anybody could make a decent script if they, if they budgeted for a bajillion. And Harlan was like, Roddenberry sucks and did all these things wrong. From my own research, my answer is that both of these men are inaccurate in their statements. That's my final take on this, that this wasn't a David versus Goliath story. This wasn't versus them or a case of executive meddling in the way that it's usually used in common parlance, but instead was simply a way of trying to turn an excellent script. You remember, I read that on purpose. It is an excellent script by, by Justman's own admission into a workable script. There was a specific mention. I should have read it. Hang on, see if I can find the specific thing. There's a specific mention, um, which was about the price cost, because at one point Harlan was asked to do a rewrite. I mentioned that. And then Harlan did a rewrite. That was the three-week one. And he specifically brought it down barely. I'm, I'm not going to find the exact quote here. I even wrote it down in my notes, 5,000. I wrote that down specifically because what Harlan did was he took a scene that had 5,000 people involved in this thing and said, well, make it 4,000 and said, make it a small crowd of several hundred people. And that way it'll be easier. It'll be cheaper, right? I've, I've brought it down. Congratulations. But that doesn't, it doesn't work in that way in any level. And that's why I just look at that like, really? <laughs> I could also mention that there's several things. Uh, Black has mentioned that Harlan was very, very eccentric. I don't hold that against him. That's just something I thought I'd mention there. Although, these kind of people tend to be eccentric in general. I wouldn't know anything about that. I'm a totally normal person. Anyways, <clears throat> the episode proper. So they're going through ripples in time. I don't even want to talk about how nonsense that is. And the ship... Uh, Ship's having issues dealing with it. In the, in, in the off chance the ship is destroyed, Kirk makes sure to use his usual order, get all this info out. I'm just pointing it out because it's a nice little tidbit that has happened more than once, actually. Just in case, you know. Then McCoy oopsies the Cordrazine into himself. By the way, Cordrazine is actually amusing to me. There's so many references in TOS that never come back. Cordrazine is used constantly in TNG, DS9, and Voyager. It's a very, very common thing. 30 cc's of Cordrazine, or Tricordrazine. You've probably heard Crusher or Bashir or the Doctor say those lines at least once sometime in your history. It's really common. Anyways, it's fun to think about. But he's like, Ugh. and then Spock flings off McCoy. Sorry, I said that wrong. McCoy flings off Spock, which 
Considering that Spock later has no problem nerve-pinching McCoy, I'm not sure how that happens, but we need the episode to happen, so we'll accept some stupid to get to the point. Because, honestly, the, the initial premise here is actually pretty bad, and the dialogue is weird. In several scenes, several people say dialogue, which is nice, and then totally ignored, as if multiple people are having multiple conversations, rather than actually talking to or even near each other. So there's just some weird disconnect in the entire setup section. Probably because the whole thing had to be rewritten pretty much from scratch for reasons I already mentioned. Instead of going down to the planet and finding a time vortex, they find these runes. Not ruins, runes. And what they find is the Guardian of Forever. The Guardian of Forever is an interesting thing to talk about in Star Trek history because it will never come up again. Or at least, it, ha it, it, it might come up in New Trek. Again, I haven't watched any of that. But all of Old Trek and all of Modern Trek, there's no Guardian of Forever. At all. It was originally actually supposed to show up in Deep Space Nine, but that was eventually axed. I only point that out because it's fascinating to me how this... Is, again, this episode's super popular, and the idea of the Guardian is super tantalizing. He even ends, uh, let me be your gateway to this and other adventures like this. And yet we never go back to it. Well, the funny thing is, an inordinate amount of books and games and other ancillary things, things that are not actually part of canon, have covered The Guardian of Forever. In fact, I found a list of all the things that were in it. And when I say all the things, I mean not all the things, because I could actually name books, too, that covered The Guardian of Forever that weren't in that list. It, sh it shows up a lot, is what I'm trying to say. Anyways, there's the thing, and it is super condescending. I hate this crap, by the way. This is something I bring up constantly in, in regards to video games. Most notably, stuff like uh, JRPGs have this problem, where there's someone who is more powerful than you, and they're super condescending. I am, in your own limited way, the kind of thing that you can barely comprehend. And they're just dicks about it, you know? And I know what you're going to say. Well, aren't godlike aliens always like that? Well, no. Going back to the RPG thing, I can name several where there's an individual character who is a godlike entity of some kind or another who's perfectly polite and fine and reasonable. Assassin's Creed had that, um, uh, to use a non-JRPG example, and Pillars of Eternity 2 had that as well, just to use another example. It's possible to, to, to be you know, a decent person and also be a godlike entity, but I'm getting off topic. Anyway, so the Guardian's a dick. It also then has this speed at which it's showing the past, which it says it can't slow down because it sucks, apparently. It also mentions the possibility of being built. One of those books I mentioned actually posits that the originators of the Q species, the people who would evolve into the Q, actually built this sucker. Anyways, so then we have the time alteration. <gasps> no. Okay. Credit to the episode's construct. The idea here is that the Guardian itself emits a barrier around it that is effectively unaffected by time. It might even encompass most of the planet, but it definitely does not encompass the orbit of the planet because the Enterprise is... never existed. So they're still there, and they're like, okay, we're going to go back, and we're going to do what we can if we fail, if we don't come back. Go ahead and make an attempt, do the best you can, and... I like that bit, you know, uh, good luck and happiness at least. Because the idea is, well, time has been irrevocably altered, so you either try to fix things and make things better, or you at least get to enjoy a life not on this abandoned rock, slowly suffocating, or not suffocating, dehydrating to death. So, you know, that's fun. Anyways. So they go back. 
as a quick aside, even as a kid, it always bothered me how this thing is like, it's zooming by time. How do you nail down the timing of that? It's not like you hit a button, like on a controller, which you can get down to, you know, about a 30th of a second. How do you jump through a giant gateway in what is probably more closer to like a hundredth of a second? Anyways, whatever. So they go back. Uh, oh yeah, by the way, Trelane's father plays the Guardian of Forever. Go figure. So they go to the 40 Acres lot. I, I mean, they go to New York or whatever it is in the past. By the way, Pevney directed this. Good job. Good job overall. This is also the first showcasing of Nazis in Star Trek. Just just another random first I wanted to point out. I'd love to say this is the first uh, time travel, but this isn't even the second time travel. Uh, this then starts the humorous part of the episode, which I don't have much to say about. It's Coon stuff, and it's good, in my opinion. I know humor and lighthearted tone is kind of uh, a, a variable thing, and obviously what some person finds funny, another person is not going to. But I thought several of these sequences were actually legitimately enjoyable. And frankly, I could say the same about several of Kuhn's attempts at humor. Um, you know, Trouble with Tribbles and Piece of the Action are two of the episodes that immediately come to my mind when it comes to Kuhn and his attempt at humor. Either way, <clears throat> we have this stuff. Kirk also pokes at the pride of Spock. Did you catch that? Spock's like, I can't possibly make a computer. Kirk's like, I expect too much of you. And Spock is visibly like, wait a second. I love that, because after all, Spock does have his pride. He's a Vulcan. And that's going to come up in a future episode, which we're not at yet, but... I've already been talking about that over an Enterprise with regards to uh, to Paul, who definitely has her pride. So, you know, this is a zinc-plated, vacuum-tubed culture. How can I make this happen? We find out that they offered a job for 15 cents an hour for only 10 day hours of work a day. Oh, God, that's depressing. But this is the 1930s, so that makes sense. You also get bread and soup. Wow. Actually, to be completely honest, this part of the episode hurt a little bit. I wish I had a place to go to when I was homeless, when I when I didn't have anywhere to go, as I've talked about a few times. Because I didn't. I didn't have anywhere to go. There's there's no option there. It's just, well, <laughs> having a soup kitchen to go to to have a slice of bread and a bowl of soup would have been really nice. So, there's this great bit. Kirk's like, shut up. I was just talking, shut up. Because Kirk's obviously already smitten with her. Then Eve gives her predictions of the future. They're going to break the atom, we're going to do space travel, we're going to cure food and disease, we're going to be hope and future to everyone. This is the worst part of the episode, in my opinion. Edith Keeler just randomly is correct about the future. Now, I want to explain why this bothers me so much. There's two big reasons. First, there's no explanation for it. Second of all, it's narrative cheating. It's like this. The way it's structured, and it wouldn't surprise me if this was Roddenberry's contribution, but maybe not. The way it's structured is the idea that she, she is right, capital R, and the reason she's right is because she is positing the ideas of the show itself, and therefore she is portrayed as right. I'm explaining myself badly, aren't I? It's, it's, it's basically the same as preaching or pontificating. When a narrative is specifically constructed to make someone appear as if they are fundamentally correct about something that the writer believes in. It would be like if I tried to posit, you know, that the idea that the extant and the, the concepts of you know, human decency and whatnot are absolutely real in real life, which they may or may not be. I don't know, because I don't posit that. It's a theory that I decided to build a setting based on the concept of, right? But that's exactly what this episode does. It takes the idea of Star Trek and says that is absolute truth. 
and it lays it down as such, which is just kind of eyebrow raising. Several people have mentioned the idea of, you know, how to fix this. The only idea I've ever heard, and I wish I could say I came up with it, but, well, I didn't, that has ever made any sense to me is they make several references to the idea of currents in time, that currents have led time to this specific point, and that she is a focal point in time. This actually makes a degree of sense, even in, in like a mathematical kind of a way, rather than a there's actually a physical current kind of a way. Because if you think about it, and I've talked about this before, historically, if you were to alter time in a very minute and controlled way, it might have no particular impact on history. But if you alter time around someone who is significant to time, that will alter history in a huge and impacting way, just like what happens with Edith Keeler. This is the killing Hitler as a baby concept right here. You know, what what happens to the world if there is no Hitler, if the fascist party, whatever it was called, I forget what it's called at the time, uh, never actually rises to power, right? <laughs> what happens in the place of that? So Edith Keeler then being one of these nexus points, therefore allowing this time to flow through her, more or less literally gets across the idea that she is kind of literally having visions. If not in the sense of, oh, I see a spaceship, in the sense that it's just a thought that it's in the back of her mind. Shrug. As ever, I'd be curious what your guys' thoughts are uh, about everything I've said, not just the the time thing and, like, the, the Harlan Ellison thing. Anyways, this then leads to using stone knives and bear skins to figure out what's going on, and we, Kirk and Edith get closer and closer. I, I guess we'll talk about that. According to some uh, works, although this is debatably canon, Kirk and Spock are here for 47 days. That's a little over, uh, excuse me, a little, uh, yeah, that's about a month and a half. We'll just call it a month and a half of them being here. I kind of like that because it allows more weight behind the idea of Kirk and Edith getting closer. And the episode does get across an idea of a significant amount of time passing. Not only with their familiarity and their work in the kitchen and their work with Edith, but also they, they do occasional shots to that apartment they go in. And each time it shows the apartment they go in, it's actually substantially different most notably in how Spock has built his machine up each time, so we can kind of see the passage of time there. Nevertheless, Kirk apparently falls in love, I shouldn't say that mockingly, in love with Edith in 47 days. How feasible do you think is that? Now, I'm not just bringing this up for my usual reasons. This is a romance of the week. Edith Keeler basically never comes up again. Except in side works where she's mentioned constantly. In fact, even in the novelization of Generations, there's a whole section where he goes with Edith in the Nexus. That's obviously not in the film. The reason I bring this up is a lot of those works I mentioned tend to show the idea that Edith Keeler is Kirk's one true love. The one person that he was most happy with and wanted to be with more than anyone else. That everyone else was just you know, a, a fling or a date, but his one true love was Edith Keeler. I'm not sure what I think of that idea. I imagine Carol Marcus would actually line up a little bit better with that, if I'm being blunt. But it's still something that just kind of makes me raise an eyebrow a little bit. And, as ever, what do you think of that? I do think they do a decent job with it, and this is a good time to bring up that Joan Collins does a great job of Edith Keeler, probably because she's an excellent actress. Now, I'm going to pause and admit something very morbid, okay? Or macabre, if you prefer. I've been... I, I try to do as deep of a dive as I can on each episode that I go through regarding guest stars, actors, directors, uh, writers. You know, try, trying to understand the behind-the-scenes as much as I can before I dig into the episode proper. That's 
always my approach when it comes to these uh, these television ruminations, especially with TOS, where I have such a wealth to go through. Unfortunately, the overwhelming number of people I've looked into this are dead. Because this show came out in the late 60s and was made by people who were my age or older back then. That's just life, right? And it's just kind of something I've gotten used to, and you'll notice I've basically not really been commenting on that this whole time, because... I mean, what is there to say? And there's this person who played this guy, he's dead. And there's this person, he's dead. And there's this woman, she's dead. And there's this person, he's dead. I'm only bringing it up now because this is the exception. Joan Collins is, as of recording this, alive. God, I hope she's still alive when this actually goes live. She's still alive, and she's still active, for God's sakes. She's still doing stuff. I just I just thought that was kind of cool, and it was nice to see that at least one person's still around. Jeez. Ugh. Please, by the time this episode comes like, please let us not lose another one. We've lost so many already. Ugh. Okay, so they get to closer together. McCoy finally shows up. DeForest Kelly nails the ranting. He, he sells his performance. This is probably the best acting I have seen from him in the show so far. Playing this raving lunatic madman, but then also the recovering McCoy, and then the recovered McCoy. All three of these are excellent portrayals by him and do a really good job of showing this shift and the passage of time. And just, it's just good acting in general. I just wanted to gush about it because it's awesome. This, of course, then leads to uh, another little tidbit. So there's this random bum who takes his phaser. He's like, oh, hey, it's a phaser. What's this? And kills himself. Unintentionally, of course. The reason I bring that up is his death doesn't affect anything in the timeline. Getting back to the idea I mentioned earlier about Nexi in time, like Edith Keeler. Just interesting to think about. If you kill Bob on the street, it doesn't do anything. But if you kill Sir Bob, the great Bobinator, well, now we've got a problem. Spock and McCoy nearly bump into it a few each other each other a few times, and there's this almost kind of sitcommy thing where the McCoy almost runs into the group, and the group almost finds out about McCoy several times before finally um, he's going she's going out to a movie, a Clark Gable flick, which actually is temporally inaccurate, but they wanted to have a film that people would recognize in the '60s. Uh, they can't see a Pix film, right? Anyways, going out to a Clark Gable flick, and he's like, "Who?" And she's like, oh, "You know, McCoy said that." He, he, and, Kirk freaks out. McCoy? Leonard McCoy? Oh, yes. Where is he? In the hospital. And he runs off, and he's shouting for Spock at the top of his lungs. This is actually really cool. I never noticed this before. I've seen this episode like 20 times. I've never noticed this before. There's this beat brief scene, which has always confused me, where McCoy rushes out, and the three just kind of collide into each other. And this is then immediately followed by Edith Keeler's death. What I've sort of always assumed is that that was McCoy seeing what was going on with Edith, rushing out to save her, and Kirk already joined to stop her. However, now watching this, remember, this is my first time watching the remastered version, too, where it's a lot clearer what's going on. You can now see the smiles and the joy, and it's like, oh, they're just really happy to see each other. It actually put a smile on my face. They're like, ah, Jim! And there's just this, it's like half a second, but they just embrace and just, oh, God, even Spock is like, you know, tries to get in on that, and then he realizes he's not emotional. <clears throat> and then Edith Keeler dies. This then leads them to going back. The big decision, you know, would you do that? I'm not sure I could, to be completely blunt. I'm not sure I could. But then again, most of the people I would mentally equate to doing that I've known for a lot longer than 47 days. So I don't know. I don't know. Let me be your gateway to these adventures and more. Let's get the hell out of here. Which actually, Shatner delivers that line beautifully, can I just say. 
In fact, the network executives wanted to axe that line from the episode, no, no joke, because it included the word hell as an expletive. They'd used the word hell before this as a place, which was okay for the censors, but actually saying hell as in, ah, oh, hell, this was the first time that had happened on the show. The eventual consensus was that, well, nobody watches Star Trek anyway, so sure, go ahead, it's not going to hurt us. And with that, the episode closes. And for once, it doesn't end on a wah-wah. Looking at this, I would say this is actually not my favorite episode. I do think there are two other episodes which rise above it. And if you've been paying attention, you know those two so far. But I can see why this one hit popular culture. I can see why this is so popular. I can see why so many people like it. I do, too. This is still my third favorite episode of TOS so far. That's high praise. I am, as ever, curious of your thoughts. I hope you've enjoyed my dissertations, and I will see you next time. Oh, wait, 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 wait. One last thing I just remembered. This is episode, season one, episode 27, 28? Shoot, hang on, let me pull up my thing here. This is, it's, it's episode 28. And you're probably thinking, okay, what's the significance of that lore? This, I've been paying attention this whole time, and I think I mentioned this already. This is the first time the broadcast order and the production order have actually lined up. For the first time, this is episode 28, no matter which, which way you're going. Okay, now we're good. I'll see you next time.